Okay, what I'm going to start with, thank you, what I'm going to start with um, is a little um, story of my childhood. When I was, I think, eight years old, my dad just told me, Dan, it's time for you to choose a football team. And I grew up in a place called Warrington, which is in the middle of, Lee, uh, of, War- of Manchester and Liverpool. Manchester has two big clubs. What are the two big clubs in Manchester? City and United. Very. I liked it that the kids all put their hands up and the adults just shouted out. Unruly. Um, and then in Liverpool, what are the two big clubs? You can shout out if you want. Liverpool and Everton. Yeah, they're the four crests. And so what my dad, my dad took me to a game at Everton, Goodison Park. They weren't very good. Took me to a game at Liverpool. It was all right. Although Liverpool at that point were the best team in the country, as well as Leeds. And then he also took me to Old Trafford. He didn't take me to what was then Main Road to to watch Manchester City. And I'm really glad he didn't. Because I chose to be a Manchester United supporter. And all in in the playground at school, everyone was making their choices. Who would they follow? Who would have their allegiance? And everyone had an allegiance as an eight-year-old in the school I went to. Everyone chose pretty much all of these clubs. There was the odd Staley Bridge Celtic fan or Tranmere Rovers, but if you were going to support a team, it was one of these four. We all followed a team. And this morning, it's not football teams we're following, but it's, we have. I'm going to ex- explain using the story of Elijah, we all follow some god or small capital gods. We all choose to have things that we follow and seek after. But let me set the context again, and I want all of Liftoff and Youth to the front. I need your help to tell this story of where we're up to so far. So once a month, for those of you who don't know this, we get our children in with us. They get to learn the things we're learning all together. We benefit from them being here of their enthusiasm and their, you know, their, as they grow in their love for God. And so where, I asked someone this morning to be God. Who was that? Toby, very happy to, be, to play the part of God. And you come and stand over here. Because God made a people for himself, that they would love him and serve him. So you are the people. Come a little bit closer. And in the early days, they did that. Stop. But then they decided that they would follow other things. You all turn around and walk to that wall. Stop. However, Benji, come here. But God called a man called Elijah. And Elijah's job was to go to the people God had made and get them to turn around to worship God. Do your best. Okay, stop there. Elijah's success, we've seen so far, it's not very significant. But God has taken him um, on a journey to teach Elijah. He is amazing. God is amazing. God's got a track record of providing. And he's going to show in this story that he has a track record of being an unrivaled God. Give these guys a round of applause. Benji, you can sit down. Wait. Yep. Go on. Hold on. Hold on. What I want you to do now, though, is rather than sitting all alone as liftoff and youth, I want you to spread yourself out in pairs amongst the people. So if you were sat in a pair 
in the people anyway, go and do that. But if you weren't, I want you to sit with the adults. And it may mean we need the adults to move a little bit to make this happen, but I want our liftoffs truly spread amongst us. Um, Because what's happened, let me retell a little bit more of the story. But this is the point. The point of Elijah is to turn the people back to God. And unfortunately, the king of Israel at this time, he was responsible for taking people away from God. And his wife, away from God, to worship a God called Baal. And another God who was worshipped called Asherah. And these were idols. They weren't gods, as we'll see in this story. And there'd been drought in the land. But God provided for Elijah by refilling a lady he was staying with. Her jar of um, flour and a jug of oil. It was miraculous. Every day there was enough food. Even though the jug at the end of the day was empty. During his stay, the lady's son died. And we saw last week an unprecedented act. that Elijah asked, God, please raise him from the dead. And that's what happens. God brings his son back from the dead. And now things come to to a head. The Baal worship needed to stop. And it, it really wasn't what people God had made were for. It wasn't what they were made for. And the drought in the land was meant to bring people to repentance. Repentance is is about turning around. It's what these people here needed to do, need to turn around and worship God. But the kind of the private dissuasion that Baal wasn't all that wasn't working. God needed to publicly humiliate this false God. And so we read in 1 Kings 18... And I'll read different bits, uh, verses throughout the story. If you've got a Bible, it'll probably help you to follow it. It's 1 Kings 18. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go, present yourself to Ahab. Ahab is the king. I will send rain on the land. So God's promising the rain is coming. So Elijah went to present himself. God speaks. Time to go. God gives an opportunity to King Ahab, the king been pulling people away from worshipping God and taking him to worship Baal and other gods. Time for him to repent. Time for him to turn around and for there to be restoration in his leadership. And rain would follow his repentance. But it doesn't work out like that. Instead, the drama unfolds, something like a boxing match. Because you've got Baal against Jehovah. In Baal's corner are 850 prophets. In Elijah's corner... There's Elijah. Doesn't look very good. And you know what happens in a boxing match? You've got you know, a weigh-in, and then after the weigh-in, everyone's like, oh, he's slagging each other off. And it, Well, that happened a little bit here. Verse 17 and 18, when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Oh, is that you, troubler of Israel? Elijah responds, I'm not the troublemaker. It's you are, you and your father pointing these fingers. But he wasn't talking about Ahab's dad. Ahab's dad had died a while ago. He was talking about Ahab's father-in-law, who was the the father of Jezebel, Ahab's wife. And it's him who has this father-in-law who brought another god into Israel to worship. He's the troublemaker. And Elijah starts pointing the finger at Ahab's missus. His wife's now being slagged off. And he's like, whoa, Sky Sports News cameras, get there right now. It's kicking off before this boxing match. 
It's now time, though, Elijah says, to make up your mind. Verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, let's follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Make up your mind. Can I have a volunteer from the crowd? Come on, Joel. Andrew, you'll like this. Andrew, who's Joel's father. Okay, you're playing Would You Rather. Okay? Would you rather for you and would you rather for your dad? So would you rather your dad have a pepperoni or a cheese string? Well, smart guy. One for you and that's for your dad. Would you rather a Mars bar or a Snickers? Andrew, your dad gets the Snickers. And would you rather a bottle of Diet Coke or a bottle of Oasis? Diet Coke and your dad gets the, uh, the Oasis. Go and deliver that to a care package for your dad. Needs all the sustenance you can get. Would you rather classic make-up-your-mind game? Don't eat them all at once, Joel. Especially don't make sure that Diet Coke doesn't get opened too soon. It might have been a bit fizzy. Um, make up your mind. How, how decisive was Joel's goats on a scale of 1 to 10? 10, yeah, decisive. And Elijah's saying to the people, come on, be decisive. Make up your mind. Don't follow both Yahweh and Baal. It's not possible. It's one or the other. So he proposes this epic battle. Top of Mount Carmel. That's the venue. For Elijah, this is the ultimate away match. For Baal, who's known as the storm god, if there was going to be a storm, Mount Carmel's the place to be. A bit like Leeds every weekend at the moment. There's going to be two altars. Two bulls going to be sacrificed. And the prophets are going to call to heaven to their God. And the one who answers by fire, that's pretty clear, that's the one who is God. Simple. Verse 24, then you'll call on the name of your God, Elijah says, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Two altars, two bulls, 850 prophets on one side. How many prophets on the other? Just one. What's going on, on a, during this story is Jezebel, the, the queen of Israel effectively, has been killing the prophets of Israel. So Elijah's not the only one. He had a, uh, there's a servant called Obadiah who had hid some of the Israelite prophets in caves, a hundred of them. But there's really not very many who are willing to stand up on this kind of show. And it's Elijah who challenges the home team to go first. So their wood is laid on the altar. The bull is cut into pieces. 850 prophets call on God, answer us, Baal, for six hours. They dance they get louder. They cut themselves. They prophesy more frantically. And what happens? Does, does the, the altar get set on fire? What do you reckon? No. Nothing happens. Baal is deaf. He doesn't hear them. Or as Elijah says, maybe he's gone for a wee. That's why he's not answering. He's taking the mick. They give up. Baal's not answering. There is no fire. There is no Baal hearing from heaven. Elijah's turn. Well, he's got to build 
his own altar. Because in those days, there was plenty of Baal worship going on. But on Mount Carmel, there was an old altar. An old altar that, back in the day, Israel would have worshipped on. Or a man who followed God would have worshipped. Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of the Israel people. It would have been far bigger than this. But he put 12 stones out. 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. What he's saying is, he's for everyone. This God is for everyone. And he put his wood down. And he dug a moat around the edge of his altar. And he said to his servants, pour on water. He had four jugs. And they did it three times. How many jugs of water went on the fire, or the, the wood. Twelve. Esther goes to Coburn School. They, they get it right at Coburn School. Twelve jugs. Anya, could you come here a minute? Would you pour that on my fire? And imagine Anya's got 11 of her friends all doing the same thing. Try and get it in the bowl, not on the floor. Yes, keep going. Now, what do you think? Is it more likely... This one covered with water, or this fire without any water would burn. What's more likely naturally? This one or this one? Point which way? Yeah, this one, that's right. Well done, brilliant. Well, what happens as Elijah calls on Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel, and he gets fire? I'm not kind of here, you know. I don't want to set the school on fire, just for an example. This fire erupts and even the water evaporates such is the power of the of god hearing from heaven and bringing his fire to earth elijah prayed this in verse 37 answer me answer me so that these people will know lord you are god and that you are turning their hearts back again This is what he prays before the fire comes from heaven. He is desperate. Elijah is desperate that everyone who is watching, not just the prophets of Baal, he's assembled all the people of Israel. They're watching this on the mountain. And they see, they see without question, God turns up. God hears fire falls, and the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up all the water in the trench. Why is this important? Why was what's just happened important? Well, in front of all the people in the ultimate away game, God shows up as victor. What's the response of the people? This group of Israel, thousands of them, not just our group of 15 liftoff. What's their response? Does anyone know in the story? You've not got it up yet. Wait, go back. Go back. Anyone know yet? What's their response? The Bible tells us that they fall prostrate on the floor. Prostrate looks like this, for those of you who can see. Face down on Mount Carmel in the dust. They are completely surrendered to the God who's shown he is unrivaled. No one does 
miracles like our God. He is unrivaled. Everyone, not just me, everyone fell down and worshipped. Wow, God is unrivaled. We're not to expect this to happen in Beeston or Holbeck or Middleton or Morley. We're not to expect this to be the normal way of God showing people. So I just, just want to caution you people, and Liftoff in particular, of going to demonstrate the power of your God by having a really wet bonfire in the middle of Cross Flats Park and calling on heaven expecting God to answer. God is showing the people in this time he is unrivaled. It's telling us God cares what people worship. But today, people aren't worshipping Baal. At least, I don't think they are in the UK. They're worshipping other gods, other gods that are more subtle or less obvious. But people are being called back, called back to follow God. And we're to do the same. We're to call people to follow God. And this, you know, there's <coughs> idols and gods of today are subtle. I'm not talking about other religions. I'm talking about what Tim Keller, uh, a really clever guy who lives in America, calls idols of the heart. Because the heart, the human heart, is an idol factory. And we all have idols in our hearts. What idols, you might say? Come around to my house and ah, there's no gold cows that I've put up. There's no shrines to other gods. There's nothing hidden under my mattress. Well, they're not going to be that obvious, but they will be hiding in plain sight. Because our hearts make things like gods. Because we think they'll bring significance, worth, value and meaning. They might be things you own. They might be the careers you have or want. It might be your friends. There's a, there's a chance there'll be the results you're trying to get in your exams. Or your, perhaps even your children are your idols. And the way that Tim Keller really helpfully expresses it, he says we make good things. All those things I've listed are good things. They're not evil. They're good things. But we make them idols when we make them ultimate things. We can't live without them. We can't, we can't gain our significance, security, worth and value without these things. We basically replace God from the throne of, the, of our lives and put these things up there instead. We still might think God is important, but he's, he's been replaced as number one. We go out of our way to get these things. And when there's a threat, they're going to be taken away. We can't cope. It's a little bit like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. You know Gollum, the character who, he's a hobbit initially, and he finds a ring, Sauron's ring of power. I'm not wearing my wedding ring at the moment. It's okay, nothing's happened between me and Anna. I just cut my finger and it started bleeding, so I took it off. But if I, I'd show you, I have a ring in my finger. And, he, and Gollum takes care of this ring because it's valuable to him. What does he call it? Precious. My precious. He's made a good thing into an ultimate thing. He's become enslaved by it. That without this ring, he's nobody. He must have it. And this ring forces him to um, put aside the values he'd have in his life. 
And he kills someone to get this ring. An idol is something we end up not being able to live without. I'm not suggesting we'll all become murderers because of the idols in our heart. But I'm suggesting, as Rebecca Manley Pippet puts it, there's something about control going on. So one of the controls, as you say, is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. Can you see? Idolatry is setting our heart on something other than God. So how do we know what our idols are, I might hear you ask. And we're not going to spend a lot of time discussing this, but these are four ways that you might find out if you don't already know what the things you are beginning to idolize or beginning or in danger of putting above God. What do you daydream about? Or perhaps what do you think about when you go to bed? What's in your head as you're falling to sleep? Secondly, what do you spend your money on? Or kids, what's the first thing you want to spend your pocket money on if you get pocket money? Where does our finance go? We'll reveal some of the things that are potential idols. How do you respond to unanswered prayers or frustrated hope? From the thing you really want, you can't have, how do you respond? Well, if it's about not getting your way or not getting that thing, well, that might reveal something of what's an idol in your heart. And fourthly, what do your uncontrollable emotions tell you? I'm not saying any of us have uncontrollable emotions that I'd like to point out. But we all know when there's some emotions in us that we just can't deal with in the rational way. This will help us tell what are the idols of our heart. And whatever we idolise will demand our time, it will demand our attention, it will demand our energy. And this demands over us, will control us such that it has mastery over us. Let me just finish land this by just thinking about the idol of beauty of wanting to be beautiful, or wanting beautiful things. Because beauty is a good thing. And in the Bible, you read the whole of the Bible, you see beauty is given a good status as a pleasurable thing. But, if you make it the most important thing in your life, you make it an idol. Think about our culture. We have people who agonise over their appearance. They spend excessive amounts of money on it, on their clothes, even on their body surgery. Whole industries of the fitness um, world have been given to this idolatry. And people are foolishly evaluating how much they matter because of what they look like. And the balance they've got wrong. Some people struggle to get out of the house in the morning because they're, they're desperately unsure about what to wear because they idolize this beauty or idolize what people think of them, which comes from wanting to be beautiful. And you might go to any length to get it. <clears throat> but beware of making a good thing into an ultimate thing. Beware of being controlled by it. It, in this case, beauty. And maybe another idol going on for you. The lesson here, like the Baal the idols of the heart, they will always disappoint. They, they're futile. They're not real gods. They shouldn't have mastery over us, like the fire that doesn't burn. The one we should follow is the God who is 
unrivaled. The God who sends fire from heaven. He should be the one who is in control of our lives. He is the one who is our true master. So what do we do about idols of the heart? If, if in that, the first thing is just have them revealed. So those questions may reveal the idols of your heart. The Holy Spirit really wants you to turn and worship God. He's going to help us do this. He's going to help us displace. So to take the, where they are in the place at the moment, he'll move them so he can be on the throne. So first thing, recognize, sec- or reveal. Secondly, repent before God. And we'll get a chance to do this in our time of worship. I'll lead us in a prayer of repentance at the end shortly. Thirdly, to, we need to remove them by our, their roots. I don't know if you know Japanese knotweed. When I was 15, I did some gardening jobs for people who lived in my neighborhood. And Japanese knotweed is something that it, it comes up and it just tangles everything. Anything that has some good life about it, it gets, wraps itself around and strangles. It is not a good plant if you want to have a beautiful garden because it tries to take over. And the way you get rid of Japanese knotweed is you have to take it out at, a, at the roots. You have to dig down and you pull it up. And it's so satisfying when you get it. But it takes some work. Same for us. We've got to remove them by their roots. We can't just say, oh, I'll stop buying clothes. Because whilst that might help in some way, it won't get to the root issue. And fourthly, we've got to replace by rejoicing. Worship turns our hearts back to Jesus. We get a chance to do that today as we worship together. So God, he is the God who is unrivaled. And whatever the idols in our heart that God's revealing, we're to turn from them and replace them again with Jesus. And secondly, and this is a little short section before a time where we get a chance to discuss what we've heard. God is also the God who is sacrificed. This sacrifice, remember that this altar would have had a ball on it, cut into pieces, it was a sacrifice. Well, this sacrifice pointed to a day when there would be an ultimate sacrifice where God himself would give his son for us. Jesus stepped down from heaven lived a perfect life and prayed as he lived that people would turn back to God. But his prayers weren't the end. He gave his life. His final breath was for you. So, if we fail to live for God, which, like Israel, the people of Israel, we we do fail. Jesus brings us back to God on his merit and not our own. And today, if you recognize your life is a wreck by your own admission, today doesn't need to be another day of despair. Today can be a day of hope. Because Jesus brings hope. And that's what grace is looking at your life that's a wreck and God stepping down from heaven the giving us love we don't deserve and we get to be with God not through our own effort but through Jesus' efforts, the only man who was truly good the only man who lived who was God so God is unrivaled God is a God of sacrifice and so what I want to do now is just give you a chance this is why I spread you out lift off I want you to be involved in some discussions. Threes and fours, those sat around you. Um, Three questions. I'm going to give you ten minutes to talk about all three. If you only get to the first one, no problem. 
What does this story tell us about God? What does this story tell us about ourselves? And what shall we do about what we have heard? What are we to do about what we have heard? So I'm going to give you a little bit of time. Chat to one another. Go through these questions. If this is something you feel really uncomfortable about, talking with people who perhaps are strangers or you don't know very well, you can just listen in. I think there's some chatty people in the room who will make this interesting. And if you if you kind of not quite sure what to do, just one of your group, just take a little bit of leadership, perhaps to move you on to the next question, um, and then I'll pull us back together shortly. Okay. I wore a suit because I...
Okay, let me bring us back. These conversations you're having around the room look excellent. They look deep and um, vulnerable. It's great. And you might want to have a, continue these chats with one another later. And so don't rush off if you've had you know, two-thirds of a conversation you'd love to finish. But what I just want to find out is just some of the answers to your first question in particular. Uh, we, I was sat with um, a group, and it, there's some great answers, I'm sure, across the room. So um, what does this story tell us about God? Anyone want to offer an opinion? Joel? Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah, he showed himself, whereas Baal didn't. What else? What else does this story tell us about God? Yeah, Esther? Brilliant. He's loving and he wants to show himself to everyone. Absolutely. Come on, it's the, it's the young people who are being courageous adults. I'm sure you had something valuable. Hannah, thanks. Yeah, so the story has a point. It's to, to help people know him. Yes, Joseph. Say that again. Yeah, he is the one God. There's no one else. There's no others. Um, go on, Joel. Yeah, and I think we're, we're moving into that second, not third question. What, what should we do about with her to trust him? Um, another comment that came, I think, from Toby is that we get to choose. God didn't for, doesn't force himself on us. This God shows himself and demonstrates and, and effectively says, okay, who will you choose? And of course, Elijah was desperate that people would choose God. But God himself was desperate that people would choose him, so much so that he, he sent his son. And listen, this story, story does tell us about ourselves, that we can't serve two masters. There's some of Jesus' words. We can't, it's, not, um, it's not a both and. You know, it's an either or. It's not, oh, I can serve God and I can also serve you know, this thing that gives me security and meaning. It's God or. And this is the way God says live. Serve him and him alone. So a few things I've thought about what should we do about what we've have heard and what you may need to do. Repent, humble yourselves, be strengthened by God to continue to speak God's word and live God's word even when we feel we're the only one like Elijah. We're going to get a chance to rejoice in God now. Before we get the band up, um, just going to help us pray. So I've got a short written prayer that is on the screen. I want to give you a few moments just to read through it and reflect on it first. And then I'll pray it, and you can join in with your own voice out loud if you want, so it becomes a corporate thing. Or you can just read it as we go. And we pray, Father God, thank you that you are the unrivaled God. No one or nothing is like you. Thank you that you never stop loving me, even when I run after other things. Thank you, Jesus, you paid the price for my sin and you cover my shame. I repent of the idols of my heart and turn back to you, knowing I am forgiven. 
God, fill me with your Holy Spirit now so I might rejoice in you and treasure you. Amen.